It's incredible for me to see how we have uh, been able to connect with so many people through this entire year, now just over a year. <laughs> but we're glad you're here because I know that you have other things that you could do with this time during your day. And you've chosen to carve out this time to make it special. You've consecrated it, so to speak. And that's what we're learning about in the book of Daniel is that it's so important that we consecrate everything that's set aside as we worship God and elevate him above everything else. Because <clears throat> as we put him first in our lives, he rewards those who follow him. And he has an ultimate reward facing all the way to eternity. Today, we're going to be arriving at a chapter that was just too lengthy and too chock full of golden nuggets for us to spend one day on it. And so I've divided it into two parts. So this is part one of the handwriting on the wall chapter in Daniel chapter five. If you have your Bible with you handy, I love for you to be able to have that out so you can follow along. I am going to be reading the first nine chapters to you from my translation, but it's always great for you to be looking back at it as we start to unpack things with different uh, historical context and some application today. Little history lesson here. Are you excited for a history lesson, kids? This is when you're all supposed to say, yeah, good for you. Well, the little bit of a history lesson we learned and starting last week, and this is a condensed of that condensed. Last week, we saw how starting about 600 years before Christ, there were several leaders in Babylon or in that part of the Levant, some of which became Babylon later in the southern part, as we'll find out today. And they each called themselves Nebuchadnezzar. But we need to connect those because it's always fun for me. It's, it's kind of a thrill to see all the dots connected through the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we're also going to be looking briefly at the Herods. You probably have heard of King Herod. Well, there were multiple Herods, just like there were multiple Nebuchadnezzars. And we're going to look a little bit about the Herods, the first who came just a little bit before Christ. And then... Uh, we also see how the one that hung over in his reign just a little bit after Christ was uh, killed and buried and resurrected again. First of all, the Nebuchadnezzars. A little history there just to remind you that there are different Nebuchadnezzars depending on which chapter or chapters we're in in the book of Daniel. And that's good for us to know because these things have really been pieced together in part by archaeology and it has validated the scriptures for us in such huge ways because there was a huge Nebuchadnezzar history on cuneiforms, these clay tablets that they had fired so they last forever. And there was a gigantic collection of those found, and they have dated many of these things for us. We had Nebuchadnezzar I, Nabopolassar. He was the one who came just before Daniel as Daniel was being exiled in that wave of Israelites coming up from Jerusalem over and east into Babylon. Then we had Nebuchadnezzar II, that would be Nabopolassar's son, and that would be the Nebuchadnezzar that we saw in the first three chapters of Daniel. Then we understood also that Neb number two had some sons and relatives who ruled after him, and they were very short reigns. Apparently, they didn't do so well, and so they moved through their reign one right after another. Then we finally had that other Nebuchadnezzar, but he was a usurper, and he grabbed a hold of the name because he was basically just trying to do something by way of a PR move. <laughs> and he thought that it would be more beneficial to have the name because people would respect the name. And he was the one who was so wealthy and had these great intents of expanding the territory. 
great intentions, I should say, and he built the new palace down south in Tima, because that's the way they spoke in southern Babylon. It's later called Babylon, but right now in this particular part of the era, when we think of Tima, that's where this particular Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar III, went so that he could live in that palace that it took him four years to build. But he left somebody back in the old and original Babylon, the city of Babylon, and uh, he left his son there. And it's a good thing that he did because that pieces together some of that lost history that people had tried to say was a mistake in scripture. It was not a mistake. His son was ruling, so there still was a Nebuchadnezzar on the throne in old Babylon, but that was when his father, Neb III, was going crazy for seven years as per the dream which he had. So then we're gonna look at the Herods. There are three different Herods. This is in the New Testament era, just coming, just prior to Jesus being on the scene. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and Herod Agrippa. First of all, with Herod the Great. This Herod was not Jewish, and he started his reign over Israel just a few years prior to Jesus coming on the scene, and he was still ruling just when Jesus was born. And even though he was responsible for a couple of good things, at least people thought that he was responsible for these things that were good, I guess it's a good thing that he helped rebuild the temple, right? I mean, I would consider that a good thing. But there were a lot of other things about his reign that were not so great, even though he was called Herod the Great. He was the one who became known, unfortunately, for ordering the death of Jewish children two years and younger, because he feared the prophesied Messiah was going to come and take over that area. And he wanted to try to do away with that. So he thought, well, if I kill all the infants in that area, two years and younger, certainly I will have wiped out that promised Messiah and I won't have to worry about him. A lot of kings were pretty paranoid about power and did lots of crazy things trying to make sure that they could keep their power. We've talked about the Babylonian magi, the wise people, magicians, wise men, sorcerers, soothsayers, diviners, fortune tellers, astrologers, whatever you wanted to call them. They had a variety of skills, and some of them were called Chaldeans because they came from that southern part of what we know now as Babylon. Those were the people that the king had around him as his cabinet, so to speak, to try to help him discern things, especially on the supernatural kind of level, so that if a king couldn't figure out something, they would call the diviners or the soothsayers or the wise men. And we also know that Daniel was promoted because God gave him the supernatural ability to tell what that first king's uh, dream was and to be able to interpret it. And so he was actually put in charge of the wise men. Now, when Herod the Great realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, ah, you see that term there, Magi? Guess where that comes from? That's where six hundred years before Christ intersects with when Christ came on the scene because those wise men who were hunting for the Messiah based on astrology and some of the things that they'd been reading, they were hunting for Daniel's Messiah because they were, these were descendants of the wise men from Babylon. Bum, bum, bum. Don't you love it when a plan comes together and you can see God's hand at work all the way back from Babylon pointing ahead in history and Daniel, who was in the chief of the wise men, his descendants or those people who came after him and those other wise men are these folks who are looking for Messiah in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.16 says this, when Herod, this is Herod the Great, that first Herod, 
realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi because they didn't report back when they found him. They actually went there to worship him. Herod the Great didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So that's what brings us into what we know as our Christmas story or the Advent story. And it took only a few months after he ordered these murders before this particular Herod was dead. Hmm, it makes us ask, could this have been God's judgment? I'm going to let that question hang out in the air because it's going to get asked again a little bit later. And then there was another Herod. He was one of Herod the Great's three sons, my three sons. Da, 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 da. If you're over 50, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was actually divided into four regions, and they were ruled by three of his sons. And you can see the map that I've got here for you on the screen. Galilee is up here, and the upper left-hand corner, if you want to, to call it that upper left-hand quadrant of Galilee, that's where about two-thirds of the New Testament took place. That's an incredible place, and uh, Joy and I got to see a lot of those places when we went to Israel, and it's fantastic to walk around and realize how compressed everything is when we read about it in Scripture. Down here, if you follow the Jordan River, which empties out of the Sea of Galilee, and comes down southward toward the Dead Sea. Then you have what we see here as Perea. That was one of the other regions that Herod Antipas was ruling after Herod the Great passed away. So he was ruling both the Galilean region and the Perean region. Perea right now, just east of the Jordan, is what we would consider Jordan. And you can actually see that from across the Jordan River, which is not that wide when you're in Israel. You could look right across and see Jordan. And then up over here would be Turkey, and uh, so we can see that a lot of these uh, things that come in Scripture are just compacted, and it's like the bullseye of the target for everything good and everything bad happening at the same time when Jesus comes on the scene. Now, um, the most famous of these three sons of Herod the Great was Antipas. He wasn't any better than his daddy Herod in terms of being a nice guy because he persecuted the Jews. God's people, and he persecuted early Christians once the Christians started to become a thing after Jesus rose uh, from the grave and ascended to be with his father. And then you saw this great, wonderful growth of the early church, as we read about in the book of Acts. And Antipas became known for being the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. You probably recall that story. And he was also the Herod who ridiculed and mocked Jesus after Pilate had sent Jesus back to him so that there were these mock trials going on. So not a nice guy. And within six years of his mocking Jesus in that mock trial, this Herod was also dead, and his son never ascended the throne. We ask the question again, could this have been the judgment of God? Hmm. Then we have the third Herod, Herod Agrippa. Instead of Antipas's son taking the throne, as was usually the case, his nephew, Agrippa took over the leadership responsibilities as the king of Judea in 39 through 44. He picked right up in his uncle's footsteps in persecuting God's people. Here we go again, all three of these Herods. And now he has a new group of people to contend with. 
And they're also creating lots of trouble because they started to spread and grow so quickly that this movement troubled him. These people were called the Christians. And 10 years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, the church was growing like wildfire in that area. And Herod was worried about how powerful this new movement was becoming, so he was trying to find a way to put out that fire. He actually arrested a large number of people in Jerusalem, including James, the brother of the Apostle John. James and John, you know, you probably remember them as being called the Sons of Thunder. <laughs> well, there are some interesting things to be reading about in Acts chapter 12. So if you want to dive into Acts 12, that's where we get some of this history that's coming into play related to Herod Agrippa. James was well known among Christian circles, especially in Jerusalem, and Herod was playing politics here with his arrest. In fact, he thought that if he could silence one of the best known apostles and some other key leaders of this Christian movement, he could quench those early flames of Christianity. So he had James killed with a sword, as we read about in Acts 12 too. Then he saw how this horrible act pleased the unbelieving Jews who had kept him in power. He thought, hmm, you know, I'm going to arrest this guy named Simon Peter, and I'll do so during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, that took place starting the day after Passover and lasted for seven days. But Agrippa was in for a surprise. He would have been told by his aides that on the night before he was going to have this very public trial for Peter, Peter, who had been chained between two soldiers with two other soldiers standing guard, had somehow miraculously escaped. That's also in Acts 12, 3 through 17. But the crazy thing about this escape was not a single soldier, and there were a lot, a lot of them around, not a single soldier saw what had happened. Now, if you were Herod Agrippa, <laughs> wouldn't you think if you had heard about that from your guards that maybe you were dealing with something kind of supernatural and bigger than yourself? Do you think maybe your grandfather's demise and your uncle's demise might have been clues that if you mock God and try to put down the Christians who were starting to become powerful in that day, that maybe you just might have seen the handwriting on the wall? And do you see what I just did there? <laughs> Connecting it back to Daniel, because that's what we're going to be looking at in Daniel chapter 5. But just as we've already seen with some other proud, arrogant rulers, Herod Agrippa did not see the handwriting on the wall, or if he did see it, he didn't heed it. It wasn't long after Agrippa had ordered James to be killed and Peter to be imprisoned that he was sitting on his throne, waxing eloquently to his loyal yes-men subjects. And those subjects who had blindly followed Herod Agrippa's leadership because they had something to gain by being associated with the power in that day. That never happens in today's politics, does it? Nah. Uh, they started shouting, this is the voice of God, not the voice of a man. Now, we've seen in scripture, and we continue to see it, that it's not a good thing for people to elevate themselves to the level of or being above God, or to allow others to suggest that you're equal with God. We've seen that in the New Testament when people tried to bow down and worship Paul and Barnabas and they said, no, no, don't worship us. There's only one true God. Remember that? Well, here's what the next verse in Acts 12 says about what happened to Agrippa after these people started trying to elevate him to the status of God. Immediately, because 
Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Ew. This is something that shows us that God takes his glory extremely seriously. And yet, the very next verse in Acts says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. We can try to put down God's people. We can try to get rid of his word, but both are going to persist because God's kingdom is going to last forever. But here's what we learned about God in these historic events. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over kings and rulers of this world today, just as he was over the leaders in 600 BC and AD 10. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changing. Which means that when he exercises his judgment, it's righteous. We can trust it to be righteous. He is the righteous judge because of his holy character. So if he judges, we can count on it being a righteous and correct judgment. We don't have to fear that he's going to be whimsical or do something just because he feels like it. It's all going to be based on his character, which is the plumb line for truth and righteousness and holiness. Well, Daniel 5 provides an example of this God who brings his judgment gavel down hard on a wicked, arrogant ruler in Babylon, and his name is Belshazzar. We learned last week from chapter 4 that Nabonidus, a.k.a. Nebuchadnezzar III, the usurper who grabbed the name, learned through an extremely difficult seven-year lesson when he was wandering around like a beast that God is a God of justice and that he always follows through on his promises, even if the promises are prophetic judgments. And we know that we must humble ourselves before this God because his judgments are always right. Then the very last part of Daniel 4 becomes something that's not only a good word for all of us, but it should have served as sort of a, a prophetic word to his own son who was gonna be ruling in Babylon after he moved down to Shema in that Southern palace says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, meaning the third, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Hmm. So let's look at the three main characters in chapter five, and then we're going to work our way through just the first nine verses of that chapter, this part one. There's Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus. He ruled in Babylon up north. This is the old Babylon. Now, later on in history, you'll start to read about these two Babylons. But right now, you'd only read about Shema in the south and the original Babylon up north. He was the king who immediately instigated the building of this lavish new palace down there in the Arabian desert called, not Shema, Tima. I said Shema, didn't I? Tima, T-E-M-A. Say it with me so I don't forget it. Tima. Thank you. Uh, and then we found out that Belshazzar, the younger of the two, is left up north after Nabonidus moves down. And then we also have the second person, the main characters in this particular chapter, and that is the queen. And it only says the queen as we're reading through the narrative here in chapter 5. But we know from history and looking at a couple of clues from this particular passage that we're really talking about the queen mother, who is not the... Uh, the wife of the king, it was actually the wife of one of the predecessor kings. 
And there's some debate as to which of those predecessor kings she was the wife of. Um, I don't really know for sure. It'd be great if some of these cuneiform tablets are discovered someday that can shed some light on that, but she's actually unnamed. But we do know that she was the queen mother. Now, if we lived in the UK, I think it would be fair to say that many people there would probably say that she was the queen mum, and that would be okay. If the archeologists ever discover the queen mum's sarcophagus, then she would probably be known as the queen mummy. Just put that out there for you. <laughs> People gave the queen mother a great deal of respect in that particular culture. Uh, we actually see that in Middle Eastern and Far Eastern cultures where very often the matriarch in the household and especially in the royal households, they carry a lot of weight in their decisions and their suggestions. People show them a lot of respect because they have a lot of wisdom and they treat them that way. I remember when my mom went to teach English as a second language two different times on short-term mission trips to China, they revered her. She was an elder and they would hold an umbrella over her head to keep the sun off of her and they followed her around. And she said, man, I was treated like a queen. And I thought, well, there you go. <laughs> That's an example of exactly the kind of respect that they showed folks like that. And we're gonna see how much they respected this particular queen mother in chapter five of Daniel. And then we have Daniel. We're going to learn from him that we can and should accept God's righteous judgments as he does. And even though he's diplomatic in the way he comes across, he trusts God and God follows through on doing things for Daniel to reveal God's glory. And Daniel doesn't keep the glory for himself. It's never been the case. And we're going to see that again in chapter five as well. So here's a little outline. We're only gonna do part one today, but then next Sunday, we're gonna tackle parts two and three. We must not profane God's holy name. There's the must not, and that's the first nine verses. And then there's a couple of musts. We must acknowledge God's infinite wisdom and we must accept his righteous judgments. So let's start looking at these lessons from chapter five, shall we? Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain. Aye, aye, Captain, okay. Outline of chapter five, where it's starting at uh, the very first part, verses one through nine. Let me read just the first section of this, and I'm going to have to interrupt myself for a brief uh, parenthetical note, the parentheses, because it's kind of important too. So we're starting here at verse one, chapter five. King Belshazzar, in the original old city up north in Babylon, gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor or father, depending on which translation you have. This is where we need to hit the pause button for just a moment for a lost in translation moment. This lost in translation moment is brought to you by Bible translators everywhere. Belshazzar, say that with me now. Belshazzar, just so we can get that name down, very good, gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, as it says in the New Living Translation, but in many of the other translations, it will say his father. I mentioned this briefly last week that the most accurate word here in context is predecessor, not father. Now, a, a little history about that. Sometimes people in that culture would refer to elders in the community as father 
almost like in the Native American culture, some of the younger kids back when I was growing up in Arizona, we were taught this. I don't know if they're still doing it the same way. The younger kids would see any elder who was given a great deal of respect in their tribe. Those kids would refer to that person as grandfather, even though it wasn't their biological grandfather. Uh, very same thing we see in India. We've known some Indian uh, folks, Eastern Indians, and we would see their kids referring to some elder man in their circle of influence as uncle. They would refer to them as uncle, even though they weren't blood relatives either. So it's okay for them to say his father, because they might've said that knowing that in the line of succession back up to the Kings, even if they weren't blood relatives, they could still be considered that. But in our English uh, mindset, and because we're so used to trying to connect the dots relationally, it just makes more sense. And I think that the New Living Translation really got it right because they did their homework and they understand that their primary audience is Americans. So predecessor makes sense to us. So that's what we see there. And it just helps clarify some of the other big questions that had started to arise in critical thinking as people were being very critical of some of these things they thought were mistakes. Not a mistake. It's just a lost in translation moment. So there you have it. Meanwhile, back to the passage after that parenthetical note for Lost in Translation. Daniel chapter 5, we're going to pick it up with verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, notice it says his wives, plural, and his concubines, but it doesn't say anything about the name of a person who came in later. That's because that's going to help give us a clue to know that it was the queen mum and not actually the wife of the king. Uh, they were drinking with them in this big banquet room. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. See what they're doing there? They're praising pagan gods. Suddenly, verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. He was shaking in his sandals. That's what he was doing. In verse 7, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, a.k.a. Chaldeans, as we had mentioned, the diviners. And then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Hmm. Let me give you a little setup for this banquet and this incident. The king was living large. Babylon was a magnificent place. This was the original Babylon boasting of its hanging gardens, which in the ancient world was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And Belshazzar, young, rich, impetuous, was left in charge of his daddy's palace. It's like being given keys to the Lamborghini. He was living large and throwing a lavish banquet for a thousand nobles. And yet, as extravagant as this banquet was, we know from history now, 
from this cuneiform history, the records in Greek historians and then the, the historians Herodotus and Xenophon, that Persian personnel were poised on the plane, prepared to pounce, proving to produce a precarious predicament for a pompous potentate. The cuneiforms didn't say it exactly that way. That's my transliteration of it. But my goodness, that was a plethora of plosives. Uh, my apologies. In other words, he was throwing a wild party while the enemy, enemy was camped right outside in the plain. Now, if the history had been written by the folks in Tima down in southern Babylon, they would have probably said something like, that king was too big for his britches, and there's a mess of men out there waiting to take him down a notch. Why in the world would this king throw a lavish party when his enemies are camped right outside? Well, let's look at three possibilities, shall we? First possibility, a show of power. It's like, uh, I shall throw a banquet in front of my enemies. We see that in scripture sometimes. That's not the case here, I don't believe, however. A couple of reasons why you'll see in a minute. I don't think he was displaying his power and showing off for them, hoping that they would hear the revelry and think, oh man, they're not afraid of anything. Uh, we, we better not try to do anything with them. We should not break in on them. I don't think that's the case here. Second thing, maybe he knew the Persians were coming but he just couldn't do anything about it. So it's like, well, eat, drink, and be merry, or tomorrow we die. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. It just seems pretty illogical. Cyrus, the Persian, had just defeated Nabonidus. Who's he? Remember Nebuchadnezzar III, his daddy, about 50 miles away. So he had just been defeated, but we don't have the internet back then. We don't have the telegraph. We don't have telephones. We didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So there's a good chance that he might not have known about that. So that's why I think option number three, possibility number three, makes the most sense. I think he was just oblivious. I think it was a young guy who was completely prideful and felt like, man, my daddy trusts me with this whole fancy place, and I'm going to throw a party and show people just how powerful and wealthy I really am. And I think he was oblivious for another couple of reasons. He probably felt much more safe than he actually was because Babylon was huge and they had these huge walls, double walls that stood really tall, like 30 feet tall. They would have been very difficult for any soldier to get through. And they were thick enough that they would have been impervious to any of the weaponry that they had available back then. So it may have been that he was just lulled into a false sense of security, thinking we're completely protected here in Babylon. Nobody can lay a finger on us, so we're just going to party it up and have a good time. However, there was a little chink in the armor. There was a little bit of a vulnerability there. And to quote a movie title, a river runs through it. That's Brad Pitt in the movie there, by the way, just in case. I don't think that there's any Babylonian context historically to this movie just happens to be the title and it seems to fit. And I'm trying to give you something to remember this by so that when you see that movie later, you'll remember that you had a great lesson from Daniel 5 one day and it'll all come back to you again. <laughs> the Euphrates River ran right through the middle of Babylon, the city. That's why they could have the hanging gardens because they had access to the water there. And apparently the Persian army intelligence team schemed a scheme to block the stream upstream before the river entered the city, you see. In just a few hours, the level of that river that was flowing under the walls and into the city, that, that level dropped 
lower and lower and lower until pretty soon the army was able to just walk in through that muddy riverbed under the walls and into that great city. Not surprisingly, the Babylonian army put up no resistance. The great city of Babylon fell to the Persians that day. So I tell you what, the Persians were really just mopping them up. First with daddy 50 miles away and then over there to the old city of Babylon, wham, they took it out. As was predicted, as you'll understand from that very first dream that we saw early on in the beginning of this study too. God has a way of fulfilling all of his promises. So why didn't the king see it? Why didn't he see the, the handwriting on the wall? Well, he did. He saw it, but he didn't know what it meant. Do you think maybe that's true for some of us? That sometimes God has been writing. He's just been making himself known and making it plain, but we just don't see it. Possibly because of pride, possibly because we're a little bit too focused on our circumstances instead of being still and knowing that he is God and listening to his still small voice or looking into his word. And so we're consulting other people rather than looking to God himself. I think there are very many times probably when God's been trying to get our attention and we just didn't see the handwriting on the wall. Well, there were some acts of profanity that caused this handwriting on the wall. Act of profanity number one, using the temple vessels from his own, uh, for his own banquet purposes, rather than using them for the purposes of worship, as was their original intent. His predecessor, King Neb II, who had destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, was the one who had actually brought these temple vessels into Babylon. These vessels were consecrated. They were set apart. They were supposed to be used in worship to God, the God of all creation, the God of Israel. God had established his holiness. He had set apart these objects to bring him glory. And yet here's Belshazzar giving glory to the pagan gods of inanimate objects and drinking and being merry. Now we don't use objects like this in worship in quite the same way that they used to. There are certain liturgical churches that give a little more credence to objects of worship than we might in our particular uh, history, our Baptist history. And yet we do know that it's the object that's not necessarily holy. It's what that object represents that's holy. Everything that we do points to the one who is truly holy. And so the object is important. Like when we take communion, that's important for us, but it's a symbol. And it's the one that it points to that really becomes consecrated and completely holy. Well, Old Testament worship practices pointed ahead in time to, a, to an era when Jesus would fulfill all the prophecy in the Old Testament and he would usher in the new covenant. So we have Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, Covenant, Testament, you get it. Well, uh, we learn in the Old Testament about the seriousness of setting things aside to bring God glory by keeping them consecrated or holy. And Paul writes about something similar, but in the New Testament. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, God's will is for you to be holy. Aha. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his or her own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. So where does God reside in the New Testament? In the holy vessels created for them, our bodies. God indwells the believers through his Holy Spirit. So Paul is making this analogy, showing that everything that is supposed to 
contain God and reveal God's glory should be consecrated, including our bodies then. So that's the first act of profanity, using the temple vessels for something in an unholy way and in pagan worship. And then these praising pagan gods, this was a big deal. This is act of profanity number two. Not only did Belshazzar use consecrated vessels for wrong purposes, but he also used them to worship his gods, small g. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, stone. They had a plethora of gods. The Babylonians were polytheists. They worshiped many gods. Belshazzar didn't deny the existence of Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he brought in Yahweh and just placed him in among all the other gods there that day. It places God on the same level of, or on the same shelf as all these other gods. In some cultures, they still do that today. If you've watched the movie Gladiator, you can see that the gladiator takes out a little piece of cloth and unwraps it. He's got a little carved image. Well, they used to do that sort of thing. They would have images of their gods and they would put up little niches in their homes and they would have little altars and they would set them up and worship the gods through these little effigies. And they were graven images, man-made carved images. And so God says, no, you're not supposed to do that. We're pretty sure that the Israelites definitely would have known that. And evidently, this particular Belshazzar, this king, didn't know that. And he was about to learn how important it was that we not try to demote God, so to speak, and to place him in among a lot of other gods. We can't just pick and choose which gods we want and add God in among the flavors. He's got to be exalted above all gods. He's sovereign. All of the songs that we listen to in preparation for worship today pointed at that. Well, one thing we've learned through Old Testament history, the God of Israel will not be made subservient to any other gods. As he proclaims in the Psalms, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, Psalm 46.10. And here's another one. Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. He is worthy and just. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols. In this case, literally. But the Lord made the heavens. That's in Psalm 96. In other words, God is not going to share his glory with anybody. And he's right to do so. It's okay for God not to share his glory. Why is that? Because he's the only one who can give us what will bring us the greatest pleasure for the longest period of time. No other God can do that. And because that's his desire, he has to maintain his glory by maintaining his holiness so that he can give his chosen people, those who choose to accept his grace, all that he has promised them. It's all wrapped up in his character. And when we understand more and more about the character of the holy God, we understand he's right to protect his glory. He should be a jealous God. He should be jealous for his own glory because there is no other God like our God. As we live for him, we then reflect his glory to others, but we can never usurp that glory or keep it for ourselves. And Daniel, fortunately, understood that. Uh, God communicated. God is really good about communicating clearly to people, and it seems, especially in this book of Daniel, that he does so pretty quickly once we understand what it is he's trying to reveal. Immediately, after Belshazzar had profaned Yahweh by worshiping pagan gods, the fingers of a hand wrote on a plaster wall so that the king could clearly see it. 
right before his eyes. And the king's knees started knocking. He called in his wise men. He offered them great wealth and rewards and a promotion to becoming the third in command in the kingdom. But none of them could figure it out. He saw it clearly, but he didn't know what it meant. There are several times in scripture when you see people like that. There was a guy in the chariot who's going along reading something from Isaiah, and he's reading it, and he can see it clearly, but he doesn't know what it means. But God sends somebody supernaturally to be right there with him so he can explain it to them. And he reveals exactly what it is he's supposed to do, and he gets baptized. It's amazing what can happen when somebody comes up alongside somebody. They can see God's word, but they're not quite sure what it means. And we get somebody to explain it, and they go, oh, I get it. God is seeking a relationship with me, and he makes that happen because of what Jesus did for me on a cross, and I need to accept his grace and live for him. It becomes simple when somebody starts to explain what all these stories mean because they all point to Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to, need, we're going to see next week in part two how a woman of great wisdom entered the scene, and she provides a suggestion that shows that she recognizes that God is at work. But for now, let me end with this true story as an analogy to Belshazzar's prideful behavior and the consequences that we'll get to catch up with next week. The handwriting had been clear, a warning had been clearly given, but people went ahead anyway. It was late January, 1986. It was colder than usual in Florida. I know we've got some Michiganians who are down in Florida right now, and they're enjoying the sunshine, and I'm feeling just a little bit jealous, I have to admit it. Lord, forgive me. But we're glad that they're there and soaking up that sunshine. But this particular January in 86 was very, very cold. It was at the Kennedy Space Center. NASA flight directors were going through their lengthy pre-flight checklists. They had planned to send the Space Shuttle Challenger on a historic mission that included a school teacher named Krista McAuliffe. Executives were on edge, and the launch had already been delayed a few times, so they were getting antsy. They needed some good PR, and they knew that the longer they waited, the more nervous people would be getting about sending a schoolteacher into space. Well, on January 27th, one day before the launch, the night was colder than ever. NASA held a lengthy conference, including engineers from the contractor that built the Challenger's solid rocket boosters. Alan McDonald was one of the engineers who participated in that conference call. The next day, January 28th, the weather wasn't going to get any warmer, and this really was cause for concern for McDonald. It was unusually cold, and he said, we have never tested the O-rings on these motors. I don't know if these joints are going to expand enough because in cold things shrink rather than expanding, and I'm not sure since we haven't tested with these parameters yet, we're operating in unknown territory, and we're used to operating using only what we know to be true from real tests, and we've not tested in those conditions before. So my advice is we wait for warmer weather. But the NASA officials overruled McDonald. In fact, they even asked him to sign off on the launch because he was a responsible official, and he wouldn't do it. He said, no, I can't put my name on the line because I have this strong concern about these O-rings. Well, his boss caved into the peer pressure of all these NASA officials, so his boss signed off on the launch. The next morning, millions of people around the globe 
watched the shuttle burst into flames in a huge, fiery explosion. It was only 73 seconds into its flight. Of course, there was an investigation, and a review revealed that the cause of the explosion was exactly what McDonald had feared. The O-rings had failed to hold their seal in the cold temperature. Some people had seen the handwriting on the wall, or at least one did, McDonald. Alan McDonald had foreseen the exact cause of failure, and he pushed hard to warn others. He really argued for that. So why, with that much warning, did NASA ignore his warning and push on with the launch anyway? Well, McDonald claims later in an interview that NASA fell prey to the oldest and most basic sin, the same sin that we see in the book of Daniel, pride. McDonald said, NASA had become too successful. They had gotten by for a quarter of a century without losing a single person going into space. And they had even rescued the Apollo 13 crew halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle blew up. It seemed like it was an impossible task, but they did it. So how could this cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be so successful? All this success gives you arrogance that you shouldn't have. But they hadn't stumbled yet, and so they just pressed on. So here's some questions for us that cause us to ponder. And I hope that the Holy Spirit can use these questions to help us look inward a little bit too. And think, well, what about me? Do I ever see the handwriting on the wall? And do I choose to ignore it because of my own pride? Have I ever received a warning that I just simply ignored because I thought, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm young, I'm impervious, I can do what I want. And then you do the thing that somebody told you you probably shouldn't do and you get in trouble for it anyway. I've been guilty of that. Have we ever received warnings for our own good, but we just didn't trust that the authority of that person was for my benefit? And they thought they're just trying to, we were thinking, they're just trying to steal my joy. They're just trying to rob me of my freedom. Maybe, or maybe they're really looking out for your best interests. Do we tend to resist authority thinking you're not the boss of me <laughs> when somebody tells me to do something that I resist, even though maybe they're trying to do something that could be beneficial for me? How does my human interaction and my experiences with authority as I've grown up, how do they reflect on my relationship with God? Do they color my relationship with God? Do they cause me to think of God differently? Do I tend to ignore his warnings or to downplay his authoritative commands? What in scripture lets us know that God's warnings were motivated by love and that his ultimate aim is always the good for me as I respond to his grace? Can we see that in the New Testament? Can we see it in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection? We're really grateful to have in historical records and corroborative evidence in the New Testament, evidence of a God who persists in revealing his grace, even to people who are stiff-necked and stubborn, people like the children of Israel and people like the King Nebuchadnezzar's or the King Herod's of the world. Even when people ignore the many signs he has given throughout history, we still see his grace coming into play again and again. 
and we see it most abundantly displayed on a cross as Jesus took our place to pay the penalty of sin so that we could be reconciled with that holy God. He's always wanting a relationship with us, and we can truly see in history that we can do that only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that all of us would see the handwriting on the wall when you're trying to get our attention, understanding that you do that because you're trying to pour your grace out upon us. You're trying to do good to us. You're for us. You're not against us. May we not become stiff-necked and prideful. May we not go our own way and do things that may seem right to us, but which ends in judgment or even in death. I pray, Father, that you would do something in our hearts that would soften those hearts and warm us up to you because you want to give us everything that we need that will give us an abundant life and one that lasts so far beyond this life. And I thank you that you've done so, that you pour yourself out consistently and powerfully. And we see that so well scripted in scripture, inspired by you and lived out through the people whose lives we're reading about. Thank you for this book of Daniel. Thank you for the lessons we continue to learn. And I pray that even this week, we'll heed your voice as we look into your word. I pray it in Jesus' name.